Hi, it's Tom Panneries. Uh, before we get started on this episode, which talks about a day in the life of America, I'm going to give you a heads up that in this episode, you will hear me espouse my views on subjects such as politics, as well as other aspects of our society and culture. Uh, my views tend to be left-leaning and liberal, so if you are uncomfortable with hearing those points of view, feel free to skip this episode, feel free to leave me feedback as well, and uh, thank you very much for listening if you do. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 134, A Day in the Life. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So thank you for coming back for this episode, which is the second of three that I've got going in a sort of mini-series about America, its history, its people, and its culture. In the first episode, which was episode 132, I looked at how American history is portrayed in the comics and the cartooning medium. This time I'm going to be looking at a few works that share, either in literal or thematic fashion, the title or concept of A Day in the Life of America. It's not a novel concept. I mean, when you think of it, really, the idea of capturing the essence of a country through showing its daily life is the basis for many an educational film or film strip. In fact, I remember watching film strips in the fifth grade that were produced by National Geographic and showcased a different region of our country. And I also remember half the class saying, beep, if the kid put in charge of advancing said film strip along with the cassette didn't do it quickly enough. We were such little shits. Anyway, when I sat down to do this three-episode series, there were two books in particular that were my inspiration. One of them is what I'll be covering next part, so I'll save that for now, but the other was a 1986 coffee table book called A Day in the Life of America. It's a book of photographs that were taken all on one day across the United States to capture exactly what the title says. 
And I'll be talking about that book as well as a follow-up book that was done in 2003 by the same editorial team called America 24-7, as well as a sequel documentary of sorts that's also called A Day in the Life of America that was filmed in 2017, released in 2019, and had its first PBS airing in early 2021. But before I get to any of that, I have to go back all the way to the 1960s, to a 1968 film called A Day in America, just so I can give you as much of a feel as possible for the myriad ways that this concept has been used. And I will do that right after this. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Roundup time in Texas. Herding and branding in the afternoon sun. training to carry on a tradition of defending freedom in peace and war. That cadence and rhythm sounds familiar, right? You're not supposed to recognize that voice per se, just the style and the tone, because it's the same one used in so many of those educational films I was talking about before the break. And that excerpt was from a sort of educational film. It was called A Day in America, and according to the Internet Archive, which is where I found it, was produced in 1968 by the Department of Defense. So it's educational in the sense that it's kind of a military recruitment tool, or perhaps it's a film designed to make the average American feel better about the military at a time when we were both in the middle of the most volatile period of the Vietnam War, both abroad and at home. This was part of a continuation of a series called The Big Picture. The Big Picture aired on television in a weekly format from 1951 to 1964, and then produced specials until 1971. 
The series was produced by the Army Signal Corps, and a number of early episodes focused on then-contemporary military efforts, such as the Korean War. By the time this was shot in 1968 and then eventually aired in 1969, the series was very military forward, and this particular episode actually breaks from that a little bit by putting more focus on the everyday people of America instead of like a specific aspect of the military. That video, and I'll link to it in the show notes, by the way, opens with a choir singing This Is My Country, and a number of shots of the vistas and scenery of America as well as its people. We'll see this as part of a motif throughout the film as it goes wide in a sense of kind of zooming out before zooming in on the lives of individual families or the hard work of individual people, which it then links to the way one branch of the armed forces works in some fashion. For example, the first segment of the film after the opening song begins with the narrator saying, The sun rises. America wakes up accompanied by shots of life on a farm, then a family eating a balanced breakfast around the kitchen table before dad takes off for work. Our narrator then quotes Walt Whitman by saying, everything comes out of the people, everyday people, people as you find them and leave them, people, just people. Then we head off to work with dad who takes a commuter train or a cable car or fights traffic on the freeway, there's a lot of sped up shots of people going through a city on their way to work. And then we have children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in classrooms, as well as singing My Country Tis of Thee, which I remember doing in kindergarten, by the way, but I don't think any time else in school did I ever have to sing My Country Tis of Thee every morning. Then we cut to Washington and see footage of Congress while the narrator tells us that we're a government of the people and by the people with the Congress that makes laws as well as a police force that fairly and compassionately reinforces them. The segment after that, which really has no segue by the way, is a montage of agricultural work and fishermen with music that appropriately accompanies the location. Like there's Hawaiian sounding music when we see a pineapple farm in Hawaii. In fact, if the music isn't some variation on This Is My Country, it's appropriate to the situation that's being shown. And then overhead, after the farm workers and the fishermen, we get Navy helicopters, because they're on guard, keeping watch out for submarines or something. Then we get to the industry, and we'll eventually make our way to another branch of the military. And that's pretty much how the entire film goes. I think it's like half an hour, if that long. It's not very long. And... <sighs> It's easy to laugh it off or be snarky, shake your head because it's kind of hokey or it's propaganda, which it is, especially since it is from 50 years ago and it's from a time and place where we were in a lot of a very tumultuous situation as a country. So I can see the purpose behind it. But at its essence, it's picking up on something that's gone hand in hand for generations, which is the linking of individual achievements and the beauty of our country. And even though most military recruitment ads do tend to focus on the individual and what they can gain from a career, the idea of this is what you're upholding or this is what you're defending is a strong one. And we still do see it in military recruitment in addition to all of the, hey, you want cash for college type of advertisements. No, I don't know if this piece did it 
job particularly well, to be honest, but I thought it was interesting in the way it showed our country back then using pretty much the same title as the books that I looked at. And honestly, I wouldn't have come across it at all had it had I not been searching for a 1986 PBS special called A Day in the Life of America. And that was produced to accompany the book that I'm going to be talking about. It aired on Channel 13 in the New York area, which is the PBS station. Now, unfortunately, I was not able to find a video of that special, but the search A Day in the Life of America gave me the 1968 show. So it was kind of interesting to see how this was done a couple of decades before kind of my main piece here. And, and this is actually what's interesting is that um, there's a lot out there now than there wasn't, uh, oh, maybe even five years ago as far as like random content from places like a PBS or an NBC News or, or whatever, aside from the usual crap you find, ephemeral crap you find on YouTube. And PBS actually has a lot through its app as well as on its YouTube channels. They've got old episodes of things like Frontline or whatever that have been, or Nova, that have been around for decades at this point. And they've got some stuff going back into the 90s and 80s. But a lot of their other stuff does tend to be a bit lacking as far as going back um, through uh, the years, especially these kind of one-off specials or different episodes of shows. Now... I guess that all just depends on what they've been able to transfer to a digital medium, if you really think about it. For instance, I'm able to use a 1987 McNeil Lair News Hour interview with Toni Morrison at the beginning of my beloved unit in AP Lit, um, which is really cool because it's the author talking about the book like contemporaneously with the uh, when it came out in hardcover. But for the most part, if you're looking back on stuff and you're not looking for stuff that is like really, really famous, like Nova's The Miracle of Life, it's a crapshoot. I did find a New York Times review of the A Day in the Life of America special from 1986. It was aired on November 26th, 1986. That's the day before Thanksgiving. And the reviewer, John Corey, notes that the show's connection to the book that we're going to be talking about in a second is there, but he's not, as a reviewer, particularly kind to the effort. He says, quote, The message in the program, respectfully, even reverentially, delivered by Richard Kiley, the narrator, is that, quote, the American dream is very much alive. However, it is not equally alive in all places. Camera crews visit a welfare hotel in Times Square, a Sioux Indian reservation in South Dakota, and a farm in Iowa. The, quote, most heart-wrenching, question in the farm belt, Mr. Kiley says, is whether a way of life will die. Those particular sequences provide the obligatory criticism intended to keep the program honest. For the most part, a day in the life of America could easily be shown overseas by the United States Information Agency. And I'm going to step out of the quote, which I think I mentioned last episode with the uh, comic books that were produced um, back in the 1950s. And he's kind of glancing in the direction of the big picture episode that I was just talking about, a day in America thing that was produced in the 1960s. But he says, so the, do- the one-hour documentary makes America look attractive, a place filled with handsome people of different races, creeds, and colors. And that's the end of his review. And it's kind of damning with a bit of faint praise here. 
At any rate, I only knew that there was a television special about this book called The Day in the Life of America because it was mentioned in the like forward or afterward of the book. So I went searching for it and that's what I found. So I just thought it was an interesting kind of little bit extra of information that people have been producing shows about the day in the life of America for quite some time. And like we're going on like 50, 60 years here. And this was from about 35, 40 years ago. But the book itself was probably way more successful. It was a bestseller. It was conceived by Rick Smolin and David Cohen. And A Day in the Life of America was the fifth in a series of A Day in the Life of Books. Uh, these were all produced in the mid-1980s, and the other four at that point were about Australia, Japan, Canada, and Hawaii. Smolin and Cohen get into details about the scope of the America book in a text piece toward its end, as it was a much bigger undertaking than the smaller or less popular places that they you know, worked in for the previous four editions. In order to pull this off, they got their team together. They gathered 200 photographers and sent them all over the country to shoot whatever they could on Friday, May 2nd, 1986. Uh, they secure corporate sponsorship with a bunch of companies that includes Kodak, Merrill Lynch, United Airlines, Nikon, Apple, Hertz, and a number of other corporations, with the caveat that they knew that the assignment was journalistic in nature and it's not a public relations exercise. In their foreword for the book, they say, we want a day in the life of America to be an honest look at America in the 1980s, not just another book of pretty picture postcards. Uh, their payment for the journalists for the project was that all expenses were paid and they could either get a cash honorarium or an Apple 512K enhanced Macintosh computer with an ImageWriter 11 printer, a brand new Nikon Action Touch 35mm camera, and a Banana Republic photojournalist's vest designed by renowned photojournalist Dr. Matthew Nathans. So that's actually, you know, Nikons are not, ex are not cheap as far as cameras are concerned. You know, the, 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 this was the second year I think the Mac was in production, so that's a pretty nice thing if you don't take the cash. Honestly, I probably would have taken the cash. I do chuckle a bit, though, because this is shortly after Gap bought Banana Republic while it was still kind of this weird outfitter brand and not the upscale work clothes store that it is today. Uh, go back and find, like, Banana Republic catalogs from like the mid 1980s. It's so much of a different store uh, and, and fairly interesting to see the, the change that it's undergone since then. Uh, similar in some way to Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, if you go watch the documentary that's on Netflix about them, the Abercrombie and Fitch has been around for like a hundred something years now, but the Abercrombie that we know really came to root in the, in the 90s when somebody bought the company and completely re-envisioned the brand. So it's really interesting stuff here with the retail history of some of these places. But I digress. Smolin and Cohen put out all the information I just read into a letter, and they include that letter in a double-page spread toward the front of the book. It's a photograph surrounded by a number of the objects that are referenced. There's film, camera lenses, photographs, floppy disks, the key to a rental car, and a, a number of other items. But right before they show that, uh, they introduce the concept to the reader. So against the clear blue sky and above a snow-covered mountain in a picture that's taken by Galen Roll, Smolin and Cohen offer us these three paragraphs. 
And this is kind of like the mission statement of a day in the life of America. The book you are holding in your hands is a visual time capsule, an impression of life in America taken on Friday, May 2nd, 1986, by 200 of the world's leading photographers. No picture here is more than 24 hours older or younger than any other, and no picture here has been shot for any purpose other than to document the harmonies and paradoxes of life in America as it was lived on this one ordinary day. America is a complex country and a proud one. It is an idea, a beckoning, and an opportunity. It has always been an improbable country, and to set out to capture it in a single day was an improbable, some would say impossible, idea. A day in the life of America does not claim to be the true record of even one day. A day cannot be collected as it passes by in a blaze of light between shadows. Yet on May 2nd, America yielded some of its secrets to these world-class photographers. There are several hundred photographs here culled from more than 235,000. But even 235,000 images barely hint at the infinite moments that pass through the hills and homes and hearts of America on that day. On May 2nd, America was frozen in time, and for decades to come, our children and our children's children will look at these pages and wonder at a day when 200 photographers made time sand still. It's a great sentiment. Is it true, though? Well, I'm kind of in a great position to test this because I didn't know this book existed until maybe 10 years ago. All right, maybe I'd heard about it. Maybe I saw it in a library or a bookstore like way back in the day, but it wasn't until my wife and I were spending our anniversary at a local winery and their bed and breakfast that I came across A Day in the Life of America. It was, it was in our room. Ever the curious person, I had a little time on my hands. I spent time flipping through it, but I put it back, you know. So I saw some of the pictures. It looked really, really interesting. Years later in 2018, I would be browsing the stacks at my local library and came across it on their oversized bookshelves. So I checked it out and I read it cover to cover. And I meant to check it out again for this episode, but it's no longer in my local library's catalog. So it was either culled, weeded out, um, or it was lost at some point in the last few years. Copies on Amazon were going for anywhere between 15 and 25 bucks. So I was hesitant to pay that much. Then I noticed it was available on thrift books for really, really cheap. In fact, I got A Day in the Life of America, as well as two other books for this episode and an accompanying blog post, all for less than $10 each plus shipping. And I need to make sure that I don't indulge my accumulation habits at thrift books because it really is tempting. <laughs> So that aside, copy of the book in hand, I set out to read it through and uh, take on Smolin and Cohen's challenge. Can I be the child decades later looking back at the book where 200 journalists made time stand still? Now, as a book, A Day in the Life of America is hard to summarize. It's just a book of photographs. There's no character, there's no plot, and going from photograph to photograph in an audio medium would probably get very tedious very quickly when you think about it, right? I'll describe some of the pieces that made me pause for a little longer as I flip through the book, though, just to give you an idea of what's in there. The book's arranged chronologically, uh, starting with sunrise on the East Coast and ending with sunset out on the West, 
the first page, which comes after the United Airlines uh, dedication slash ad, is a sunrise over Mount Katahdin, Maine. Uh, this is a site that's notable for being the northern trailhead of, of the Appalachian Trail, and that runs all the way to Georgia. The last photograph of the book is the sunset taken from Honolulu. And these were both taken by the same photographer, Canadian photographer Douglas Kirkland. He shot the sunrise in Maine and got on a flight bound for Hawaii, stopping along the way to take a picture in Chicago during a layover. In between the sunrise and sunset is a book that really is a cross-section of America, one that is dynamic in its approach, because while the photographers give us pictures that would most likely accompany anyone singing America the Beautiful, they also give us personal moments, some of which are posed, but others of which are very candid and seem to be taking place between the posed shots. And in some cases, the actions being depicted in the photographs are not the most joyous or glamorous. For instance, at 11.45 a.m., Larry Price was in El Paso, Texas. He covered people from Mexico trying to make their way over the border, some of whom were successful and others for whom were, of whom were detained by the Border Patrol, which we see via a picture of five men sitting on a bench in a graffiti-ridden holding cell while they're being watched over by two border guards. Now you can contrast that with scenes from high school proms that were taking place in Linwood, New Jersey and St. Petersburg, Florida. Girls primped in the mirror, a couple shared a romantic dance, there was a throng of other classmates there. In fact, the last uh, photo, the, one, of the, one of the photos in there, with a couple sharing a romantic dance and there's a bunch of their classmates around them, was shot by Mary Ellen Mark. It's not only seen on a double-page spread, but on a contact sheet. So they give us a little bit of the photographer's process. We see all the other shots she took, and then the one or two that she circled, that would be that shot. Uh, that shot of that those two kids also made the back cover of the book. So the contrast that I just described, you know, people sneaking across the border to try to get into this country, and kids at a prom, is crucial to making sure that a day in the life of America stays true to its mission and objectively covers the country. And it's a contrast that continues in the sequel book, America 24-7, and that features photographs from the week of May 12th through 18th, 2003. For this project, photographers were once again given cameras, but reflecting of the changing of the times, the project was done completely digitally. A thousand professional contract photographers were given Olympus C5050 digital cameras and Lexar flashcards, as well as Adobe Photoshop, which they would use to convert their raw images into the proper file format for upload via an FTP. In addition, 5,000 stringers and photography students were allowed to upload their images to the FTP, and tens of thousands of amateur photographers were offered the opportunity to contribute to the book by taking their own photos and uploading them to Snapfish. I don't think Snapfish is around anymore, but I remember those days of Snapfish and Ophoto and uh, some of the other ones uh, that some of them are still around. Shutterfly is still there. So the result is this project called America 24-7. It's a massive project, way bigger than A Day in the Life of America from 1986. And the book itself is longer, and it's accompanied by companion books for each state as well as Washington, D.C. and New York City. So 
Whereas in 1986, uh, Smolin Cohen produced these, edited these two bo- this book called The Day in the Life of America, which is part of this Day in Life series. Here they came back in the early 2000s, and they did 53 books. They did one for all 50 states, Washington, D.C., New York City, and then America as a whole. Um, and you could buy it. They're big coffee table books. So these things were, like, expensive to produce and expensive to buy. And you could order, like, if you saw the Day in the Life of America thing, there was a postcard. You could get, like, a custom picture on the cover. And you could also order your own state's book if you wanted to. So 235,000 photographs were taken for a Day in the Life of America back in 1986. The number of pictures for this might have toppled, like, a half million maybe more, right? Like, think of all the people they sent out and all the amateur photos they must have gotten. There was a TV special. Uh, I could not find it again on YouTube or any other place, but I did find some coverage on Oprah about the book as well, the Today Show, on those two clips I was able to dig up. So here is the uh, part of the Oprah clip. What a wonderful book. Okay, it's by DK Publishing. wonderful coffee table book. But that's not the best part. It features beautiful photographs of Americans at work and play, and it is a work of art from the original creators of the Day in the Life book series. Many of you know what that is. It's $50, and I love this. Now, this is what's great about it. You just send in your favorite snapshot, your favorite snapshot, and they'll put it on the cover. And here is part of the segment from the Today Show. This is good. You're going to like this picture. (laughs) Americans telling their own stories. In a year when many worry about how the world sees us, digital, accessible, instantaneous, and democratic, a way anyone with a camera can freeze a moment, then share it with millions. It's not just professional photographer's sense of what's going on in America. It's all of America participating in this one big, let's see what we look like project. The surprise result of this project was that amateurs often outshot the professionals. And in this war-torn year, it turns out traditional values ruled. When the week was over, respected photo editors culled through the shots, awed. This one is so much stronger. Oh yeah, it is, it's so much stronger. It is a photographic time capsule of America by Americans. Now, I mentioned that when it comes to A Day in the Life of America, the 1986 book, uh, there's a chronological approach. We begin sunrise in the East Coast and sunset in the, in the West. The approach is a little different for America 24-7. The book is arranged thematically. It's broken into sections that have short essays accompanying them. Those intro sections, by the way, really reminded me of section dividers in the high school yearbooks that I used to advise. As an advisor, I was really big on having one huge striking image with a headline and text piece across a double-page spread to introduce your um, section. And some of them we had were gorgeous. The writing, well, I mean, I had yearbook staffers and not Barbara Kingsolver. So, you know, it was, (laughs) 
and there were other prominent writers at the time writing for America 24-7. So there's a difference in quality there. But the, but the concept was really cool. And I saw this and I just my, my yurd kicked in. And I was like, oh, that's so awesome. And so I really, really enjoyed that. But here's a rundown of each of the sections of America 24-7, as well as the name of the author for the respective introductory essay. So we have Hearth and Home by Robert Olin Butler, Hard at Work by Charles Johnson, America at Play by Sean T. Kelly, Reason to Believe by Roger Rosenblatt, Our Town by Naomi Shihab Nye, and Sea to Shining Sea by Barbara Kingsolver, who I just mentioned. Now, the idea behind all of them is to capture those particular aspects of our country and society, both in photographs and then the essays that accompany the intro to the section, especially as we at the time had moved into an entirely different era. Um, this is 2003 this was shot. So this is post 9-11 as well as the beginning of the Iraq war. Or in fact, I think major combat operations had just finished uh, during the Iraq war. But each of the sections has a strip of pictures going across the top of the page. So you go through it and you see all these little, it's almost like a contact sheet across the top of the page. And uh, a couple of pictures were chosen from that contact strip, highlighted and in put in much bigger size on your double page spread or your single page spread and is completed with a caption. It's a really cool, I, it was a really cool device, storytelling device too. I really, really liked that. Had I still been advising yearbooks, I would have brought this in and said, this is a really cool way to do this. But I quit doing yearbook about four or five years ago. But getting back into the book, much like A Day in the Life of America, which was this book's predecessor, the authors do go for a diverse range of people. So we look at Hearth and Home, which is the first section. We have a lot of kids with their parents playing or playing by themselves, um, but we don't like just stick with like white kids. There's like kids of all different uh, colors and backgrounds and such. Uh, the essay for the hard at work portion is a lot about our tradition of work uh, through the eyes of Charles Johnson and his recollection of the generations of people in his family who have held jobs in the United States. In that particular section, by the way, the picture I related to the most was this double page spread of Metro Center in Washington, D.C. It was the Metro Station and like it's just basically a shot overhead from one of the platforms that kind of like goes over the uh, looks down on the regular subway platform there. And you can see a train is just pulled in. There's people getting off of it and there's just this throng of commuters trying to get on the train. And um I would have been in that throng of people at one point or another. There were times where I was commuting on those lines. I might have been in Metro Center. I kind of looked for myself but couldn't find myself. But I remember being stuck in those crowds. And, it, and riding the Metro in D.C. when you're a tourist is wonderful. It's so clean and interesting and stuff. And riding when you're a commuter, oh, my God, it sucks. It's been 20, year, 20 years almost since I stopped writing Metro, it's 18 years actually, 2004, uh, 2004. Still remember it really vividly. I can still navigate it too, by the way. I remember all the stops along the way. It's, anyway, many of the pictures that are in uh, this, this section um, of work are all walks of life as well. We've got family businesses. One of those shirtless guys who used to stand in the doorway of Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, there's also a photo montage of 
people who are sneaking across the United States-Mexican border, and it's very similar to what was in the 1986 book. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, actually, as far as the way that methods and conditions for those seeking work and or asylum for Latin America had not changed very much. And I liked the fact that the editors saw this set of pictures of the border and maybe in the back of their minds, they knew that people, there would be people who had bought the previous book. So they put it in there. So the, the book echoes the previous one. And we see how much things have not changed despite how much they have in the 17 years or so that uh, between books. My favorite picture in the work section, by the way, is a shot in New York City. Uh, Kevin Kiernan is changing a huge light bulb that is uh, placed in top of one of the gargoyles that overlooks Manhattan from the Chrysler building. So you're looking at this massive picture, and he's in the foreground on the right-hand side. And if you look out past him, it's just it's it's just Manhattan from looking looking downtown from the Chrysler building. You see the Empire State Building and everything, and it's just. It's, it's like you sit there and you look at it like like it's a where, Where's Waldo painting or a picture or something like that. You're just, you're looking at all the details. What else can I see? What can I point out and stuff? And, and it's one of those, those, those wide, huge shots that draws you in. And then you flip the page and we go from wide to like really tight in because there's this great picture of a man named William Clark He's on the inside of a courthouse tower clock. He's doing maintenance on it. It's in Adele, Iowa. And we only see like his shadow. He's backlit by the clock's face. So he's kind of in shadow. And it's one of those great silhouette pictures. You can see the, the numbers and the arms of this old clock. And I, I love the placement of those two pictures right against one another. The, that vastness of New York City and the intimacy of being inside this clock tower in Iowa with two people who are essentially doing a similar job. They're maintaining that particular building. And it is like that throughout the book, contrasting images that fit our section's themes. The last two themes of the book, the last two sections, contrast with one another. The penultimate section in America 24-7 is called Our Town. It includes an essay by Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a Palestinian-American poet and writer and she remembers growing up with a Middle Eastern father and a white mother, and she writes about her neighborhood. The tone that she uses is positive, saying that it was a place where, while they didn't have a lot of money, everybody had hope, and they often mingled, sharing their differences with one another. The pictures in this section are very zoomed in, you know, looking at sections of cities or neighborhoods or various people who make up the communities. But by contrast, the last section of the book is called Sea to Shining Sea, and it's Barbara Kingsolver in the essay that introduces us to it, writing about the need for wide open spaces. Her essay is an environmentalist's plea to preserve the spaces that are being eaten up by development. And it sets off a series of photos that are just wide in scope. Native American woman standing on a riverside in North Dakota, the silhouette of a man on a horseback in Arizona, a vast field in Texas with a tornado spinning in the background. It's all a great illusion of just how huge this country really is. And it's a great way of capping off the America 24-7 project, which went beyond just professional photographers and showed some of the pictures that the thousands of amateur photographers uploaded to the project's website. 
They are just as intriguing as some of the photographs that were professionally done, by the way. So when I look at these two books, I'm amazed at how much our country really hadn't changed for better and for worse. In 2003, there was still very much the same feel of America that there was in 1986. Now, things were a little more polarized in, two, in May of, 20, of 2003 because of the Iraq War. But like I said, um, major combat operations had really just concluded, actually. Uh, I looked it up. Bush's mission accomplished speech was on May 1st, 2003. So these photos were taken a couple of weeks after that. 9-11 is mentioned in some of the essays. There are a few people shown who illustrate the political conflict of the day. For instance, in one spread, we see a picture of eight-year-old John Vock checking out a machine gun demonstration in Minnesota. There's a shot of Bretton Barber wearing a t-shirt of George W. Bush that says international terrorist. But then there's a photograph of a roadside wagon with an American, British, and Israeli flag covered in signs that say, we support President Bush, we support our troops. It's about freedom, stupid, one nation under God, and proud to be an American. Uh, this is about as political as things get in the book, although I would have liked to see at least one shot of a support the troops yellow ribbon magnet on a side of an SUV. Um, not out of any cynical or snarky political statement, but those were ubiquitous in 2003. It's one of those things that symbolically, and like that specific car magnet, not the yellow ribbon, but that specific car magnet would support our troops written in cursive font. It, it is so emblematic of that time. I used to see them all over the place. And um, it's actually worth looking into a little bit more, our culture, our popular culture and things in the very, very early 2000s. In that era, say like late 2002 up until um, probably like late 2004 into 2005 uh, when we had Bush's re-election, et cetera, because it was a per very particular moment that while not lost in time, is not as in the minds of everybody, even those of us who lived it, um, for, for a variety of reasons. But the, the thing that I just remember is, um, like last year, I actually had to explain Freedom Fries to my seniors because they were just like, did you ever hear about this, blah, blah, blah. They were talking about it. I said, oh, Freedom Fries. And they were like, what? And I explained. And I said, I told them, like, go back. And I said, go back and do some research. Like I said, research the Dixie Chicks and research a bunch of other things, like from around 2003 and how and, and the sentiment ginned up through the war. So, yeah, it would have been interesting to see a little bit more of that. But it's still astounding to me that this project got off the ground the way it did and really did capture a moment in our nation's history or captured a moment in our nation's society, really, in the same way that its predecessor did. And it's also astounding to me that an almost an entire generation has passed since that war began, as well as the one in Afghanistan. You know, the kids shown in the pictures in America 24-7 are now adults. Some of them perhaps have their own children. The kids from the 1986 book are in their 40s. And speaking of 1986, you don't have a ton of focus on the military in that book because it, while it's the tail end of the Cold War, it, it's a time where our country is still in a period of growth and prosperity. So the military existed. You would see the be-all-you-can-be 
things on the army ads, but then there were action movies out there, but the, but the, the lionization of the military really wasn't as present in 1986 as it was in 2003. And, and we are still in prosperity in 1986. We're a couple of years off from the recession, uh, the stock market crashed in the late 80s and the early 90s. So it wasn't in the forefront to capture soldiers in America. But it was a little bit more in 2003. And both of these, it's interesting because both of these books were written while on the cusp of a major social change. And I don't mean like political, like Cold War, et cetera, et cetera, but the methodology by which we share and capture information. And we see it in the way the books were put together. 1986 was right as the personal computer was starting to take hold, for real. The World Wide Web would launch five years later. For America 24-7, we have the shift from film cameras to digital cameras. So we're on the cusp of social media as well. Um, I think MySpace launches somewhere like, what, 03, 04? Therefore, it's a bit quaint, actually, <laughs> these books. They're, they're artifacts of a time before influencers, before mass attention grabbing and everything feeling it had to be so posed. Yeah, people pose for pictures in those days, of course, but so much of our collective lives these days seems so manufactured. And I, I wonder to myself very often, is anything candid anymore? And I think that's what draws me into these two books, because as posed as a number of the pictures are, there's plenty of candid. Smolin and Cohen look to give us the moments between posed moments. Like I said, it's like they know that we are always interested in the authenticity that comes from such pictures, the expressions and the movements when the camera is not looking. Despite our access to everything now, I still think we not only crave off the beaten path or imperfect stuff, but we also consider the ways we want it shown to us. And perhaps because it's not a filtered picture, it's not a selfie, it's not posed, the candid moments in those books strike us as important because we don't see them as often as the selfies and things like that. And the idea that we are imperfect as a nation and there are things that are dirtier than the gloss that's on a, on a pretty photograph in a coffee table book, that seems to be the premise of the last piece I'm going to talk about in this episode. And that's Jared Leto's 2019 documentary, A Day in the Life of America. And I bring it to the episode not just because it shares a title them, and, and thematically is, is the same thing as the, the, small, the original 1986 book. But in interviews leading up for publicity to the show, uh, to the documentary, Leto said the book inspired the film. He said when he, he saw the book when he was a teenager and he was always awed by it. So he wanted to recreate that in 2017 through a documentary. And so he sent 92 film crews across the country to film on July 4th, 2017. This is the land of the free, created by the people, for the people. To me, America's perfect.
Day in the Life of America, part of Independent Lens on PBS. The film made its PBS debut in 2021. Uh, you can watch it on the PBS Passport app. I think you might have to have um, like their, their premium subscription service, which I do uh, in order to watch it, but it is available for streaming. So anyway, it, it debuted in 2021 on PBS. I, I believe it had done festivals and that sort of stuff a couple of years prior. And it follows the chronology of the day, just like the original book. So the original book was May of 86, and it started with sunrise and ended with sunset. This begins with a sunrise, and it ends with fireworks, because um, it's July 4th. Although the entire film is actually bookended by footage of a woman giving birth in her home as July 4th turns into July 5th. Of course, Leto is giving us the same story in a different medium, because it's a documentary with interviews, so we have the opportunity to see and hear the people in a way we didn't in printed still photographs. His point in the documentary seems to be similar to the original book from 86, but he certainly highlights the contrasts a lot more, especially since he had the crews ask people what they think America is or what they expect from it. And I guess you have to present that common thread more directly in a film than in a book with very few text pieces. What develops in this film is a constant juxtaposition of my America or our America versus their America. A country that is like, it's like a paradox. It's like divided, yet we have a lot in common. It's, uh, and, and we... We see that in this film. We see it from through violence versus comfort or opportunity versus oppression or openness versus isolation or love and acceptance of others versus bigotry and hatred. In fact, the place where we see the greatest contrast happens in uh, between 11.03 a.m. in Illinois, 11.16 a.m. in Louisiana, and 12.10 p.m. in North Carolina. In Illinois, there's footage of a black neighborhood in Chicago with people talking about how hard it is to find faith in the country and everyone from adults to kids tells us what it is like to live with the specter of gun violence and how it's been normalized to them. The film after that segment cuts to another image. It's a block party in Louisiana in a black neighborhood that's just joyful and happy and largely removed from gun violence. Here the kids interviewed seem to believe in the idea of America and American ideals. And furthermore, the adults seem to want them to grow up and make something of themselves. Because honestly, that's what everyone wants from the kids, right? It's not like adults in the segment before this didn't want that. It's like, it, it, it's very rare I think you'll find a parent in this country who, if you ask them, would you want your kids to be better off than you were when they grow up? And they'd be like, oh, hell no, forget them. Like, you know, I, I, I but, but at the same time, I like seeing that joy among the community there that's contrasted with the, with the, the other community because sometimes we get a monolithic depiction of African-American life in our country. So it's nice to see a myriad portrayal uh, of their community, various communities across the country. But there's also, you know, in here, there's a discussion of history as well. You know, people are interviewed talking about the fall of segregation after the Second World War, uh, the struggle for civil rights, uh, and how that still resonates today. 
which it really should, because when you turn back the clock on these things, we're talking 60, 70 years ago. So we're only talking a couple of generations. And there's a number of people who were involved in, in those movements in some capacity that are still alive, right? So, and they're still, in some cases, they're still prominent. So um, it's still going to resonate. Um, now, what resonated with me in that Louisiana segment were two phrases how people in that community want an America that lives up to its promise for everyone. Uh, and then there's the conflict between our lofty ideals and the need to call attention to them. And this is something I touched upon in my history episode, that there's a difference between a real study of history, which involves critical thinking and often includes criticism of America, and the ignorant mythological worship that the anti-CRT Alliance for Defending Freedom and other bullshit organizations are backing. The irony is never lost on me, by the way, that these freedom-defending uh, organizations are trying to censor and take away First Amendment freedoms from teachers and students and people across the country. But I digress. Those statements, America living up to its promise for everyone and knowing the conflict between our lofty ideals and drawing attention to them, like I said, it resonated with me, especially because the segment after Louisiana is one in North Carolina, and it's at 12, 10 p.m. And it's probably happening at the same time as the block party that they were at because there's an hour difference uh, between, the two, uh, between the two time zones. So let's say they're taking place si simultaneously. And this segment is a white family who are active members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, what Leto, Leto does here as a director is that he echoes something in Smolin and Cohen's original A Day in the Life of America book because in 1986, Australian photography Garrett Fakima was able to embed himself with a chapter of the KKK in Georgia and took pictures at a cross burning. It's vivid color footage of what those of us who lived in safe northern suburbs only saw in grainy old black and white from 20s, 30s, 40s, especially 50s and 60s, anti-civil rights demonstrations. We might have seen them in film strips and, 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 and like Eyes on the Prize and like all of the other documentaries that we would watch in social studies class. So what Leto was doing is basically echoing the, the prior book. He, in, the, in the same way that America 24-7 looks at uh, those um, Latin American immigrants trying to legally cross the border, it echoes the 86 book and shows the same way. The 2019 documentary here echoes the 1986 book because we are seeing a KKK family. And that's kind of like what I was thinking about. I was like, oh, yeah, he, he did this because it echoes the book. Like, he, he, he did something in that book back there. And it was some of the most striking photographs in that book. And then here, like, okay, let's find this family and do this. But then I saw a shot of a woman sewing a clan rope. And she said something, and it made my stomach flip. She said she was sewing robes for a rally that they were going to be having in Charlottesville on July 8th. The July 8th Klan rally came a month before the Unite the Right rallies, which was August, the evening of August 11 and the, and the afternoon of August 12th of 2017, which is roughly five years, almost exactly five years uh, prior to when this episode is dropping. The August 11th rally was the torchlight march on the University of Virginia, 
central grounds that night. Uh, that's where white supremacists shouted, you will not replace us at counter-protesters who were surrounding a statue of Thomas Jefferson. The August 12th rally took place in the downtown mall area of Charlottesville uh, in front of two parks that at the time had statues of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. Uh, they've since been removed. I think the pedestals are still there because they need that takes a lot more than just a crane to remove them, but they've since removed the, the, the statues. That rally climaxed in a white supremacist driving his car into a crowd, injuring several counter-protesters and killing Heather Heyer. There was other violence that day as well. Seeing this racist make Klan robes for that July 8th rally, which many know was a dress rehearsal for Unite the Right, had me seething. I also had to hear about their mission statements which I'm glad I did in the sense that the film crew showed some of these people for who they are. But I sat there and I'm still going to say it. Well, fuck them. Fuck them and fuck the white supremacists in the American Freedom Party rally that was shown in the film at 1.12 p.m. in California. Fuck the white men in Virginia talking about how refugees are destroying the country in the film. And fuck that fine people on both sides bullshit. And this is incendiary in terms of the film. I'm sure it shows bias because Leto isn't showing white people in a good light or he's making these people look bad, but that's bullshit. I can't give racists any fucking quarter. And if you've got something like this, you have to put in here because you can't both sides this. A bunch of fucking bigots marched on the sea where I live and killed somebody, and then were basically endorsed, and are continuing to be endorsed. Now, to take a step back from it, it does illustrate the point that it's hard to view America in 2017 and not acknowledge the way the country has become polarized. We have a few more examples of that throughout the film that are not connected to the Klan or to the Charlottesville hate rallies. And Leto does a fair job of juxtaposing that hatred with moments of both contemplation and joy, and how those moments are unique to the specific groups of people we are seeing, while still being common among all of us. I can't dismiss the polarization I mentioned and say something like, well, those are the loudest voices and they don't represent all of us, because it's ridiculous to say that. Yes, they are the loudest voices, but it's not hard to drive down the highways and back roads of the areas surrounding Charlottesville and see all sorts of right-wing signage and not wonder, A, what the hell has happened, B, how far we'll wind up going, and C, if we will ever recover. The conclusion that Leto and his filmmakers reach is mixed, complicated, non-existent. They end with fireworks across the country and the voices of many we have heard throughout the documentary basically saying they all want the same thing and how hard it is to come to consensus, agreement, or even discussion. So there is a message about finding common ground, but I don't get the sense that completely compromising yourself is what anyone would want when it comes to doing that. And there's really a lot in this documentary that's worth seeing. We have an interview with Amaya Safir, a Minnesota teenager who, who successfully was able to get the ban on hijabs lifted from women's boxing. 
where you get Sebastian Jack, a former Canadian junior tennis champion and student at Virginia Tech at the time, who was walking across the country as a way to acknowledge and thank America for literally saving his life because he'd gone to California when he was younger to have surgery on a rare brain tumor, so otherwise he would have died. We have a man in a prison lamenting the life of violence that he's led. We have people trying to make ends meet through work. And we have Woodrow Wilson Suggs Jr., an old white man living in a trailer in Louisiana who says he feels like a failure in life because I ain't got nothing. Then he reads a poem that he wrote called Time Will Tell. Time Will Tell by Woodrow Wilson Suggs Jr. Man has tamed the mighty beast, and man has tamed the land. Even the creatures of the seas obey to man's command. The forceful winds and driving rains give way to man-made fronts. Yet man can't tame his own desires or control his foolish stunts. His lust for power of the world, his will to conquer all, has made man's world a worthless waste and very, very small. He's climbed the mountains to the sky, he searched the ocean floor. Still his soul's not satisfied, the stars he must explore. Now man has reached his no return, it's onward he must push. And only time will tell us when, if ever man will learn. It's a sad moment delivered by a person who sounds like an old country sage. but is utterly defeated, and the way this harmonizes with the other sentiments, that we all want the same things but are ultimately frustrated by the obstacles that are the reality, is reminiscent of F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Steinbeck, Arthur Miller, whoever your high school English teacher used to illustrate the hollowness and failure of the American dream. Now, there is no way that Jared Leno is a visionary, because I, I... I actually don't like Jared Leto very much, sorry. So I don't think he's a visionary. And the film has a lot of cues that you can very well find in other pieces. But to his credit, he shows that he's a good student. He's one who did pay attention to those lessons and he sought to explore them further. The use of motion picture instead of print photographs obviously allowed for a different way of seeing or expressing things. And that's both good and bad. I love the photography in... A Day in the Life of America from 1986 and America 24-7 from 2003 because of the way I get to linger on the image. And aside from the information in the captions, there's not a lot that's told to me. Therefore, I get to interpret them. I get to look for a deeper context. I get to, like, marinate in them. There's something about that. This documentary, though, allows its subjects to speak, and it makes the points more overt. It's necessary to a film like this. But I also feel something gets lost when you have to do that. The pat ending to this episode here would be something about how deep down and across time we're really all the same. But like I said earlier, saying that washes over the evils that we can't ignore. It also washes over the differences that make our society great. 
Americans can be giving and kind, but we can also be ruthlessly selfish. We can have strong senses of right or wrong, but also allow our morals to be perverted into tools of oppression. Such contrasting characteristics make it hard to be idealistic and sometimes even optimistic. Still, I'm struck by the way that we see into people's everyday lives in these pieces and the commonality of all of it. I cannot relate to everyone in these books or in this documentary, and some of them I downright loathe. But of those whom I don't, I can see where we might be able to have a conversation or be comfortable around one another. Smolin and Cohen, the editors of A Day in the Life of America and America 24-7, as well as Jared Leto, go beyond just America as a concept, and they give us a very human experience. My worry, of course, is with the way we seem to be losing that humanity or having it taken away from us. Another America photo book in 2036 or 2037, because it would be roughly 16 to 17 years after Leto's film. And that was roughly 16 to 17 years after America 24-7, which was 17 years after A Day in the Life of, which was roughly actually about 17 or 18 years after the day in America. I mean, there's kind of a cycle here, right? That'd be really cool. Come back, somebody come back 16, 17 years from now and do that project one more time. See what about America has stayed the same? What about America has changed? What about America is still here? Will we still have our, our soul? What is America's soul, by the way? Like a heady concept to end an episode on. Like, where do you find it? That's where I'm going next episode. I'm going to be looking at two books by Peter Jenkins. And he's essentially asking this question in his books, A Walk Across America and The Walk West, A Walk Across America too. So for the final part of this trilogy, I'll be looking at that concept of walking across America. Now, in the meantime, there are three things that you should check out. First, there's show notes for this episode. You can find them over on popcultureaffidavit.com. I'm going to be sharing links to both Leto's film, the trailer to the film, the day, in, the day in America thing from the 60s, as well as photographs from the two books, 1986's A Day in the Life and America 24-7 from, from 2003. Second, go over to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. We've done, uh, f- we've, we're doing four episodes. We've released three as of this recording, and we're going to release a fourth next week. Uh, that are about hiking and walking. Um, We've done Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, Cheryl Strayed's Wild, and in episode 70, which will be out in September, we're going to have a special discussion about those types of journeys and the memoirs that come from taking a very, very long walk and hike and stuff. Come back to the blog next week, by the way. I'll be posting a blog post about a companion book to A Day in the Life of America, This was from 1987, and it's called The Day in the Life of the Soviet Union. Yeah, so those of you who are fans of the Fallen Walls Open Curtains series get to see some interesting mid to late 80s Soviet images. It's a really, really cool book. Next episode, I'm actually uh, actually going to do two uh, episodes and then release the last part of this miniseries. I've got a normal episode coming up about the newly released... Paper Girls, 
series that's on Amazon Prime because Stella and I talked about Paper Girls back in, oh, a couple of years ago on the podcast. So I decided let's go ahead and get back together and do this and talk about the first season of that show. And I'm going to also, then after that, I'll be taking a look at two teen comedy TV movies. They both aired on NBC in 1988, The Drive Red Comedy Crash Course and The Prom Flick Dance Till Dawn. And then we'll come back in September or so for uh, the last part of this. It'll be around mid-September when, the, when my episode about a walk across America is released. And of course, don't forget to send feedback my way. Um, I didn't get any for the first part of this little sort of mini-series, but you have any thoughts or in that episode, this episode, I will read it in part three. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And more people What do they know, no, no Go to work in some high-rise And vacation down at the Gulf of Mexico Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Little pink house, yeah.